Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Ricky Stern is an American film director, screenwriter, producer, and award-winning documentarian of multiple features and series. She's directed such projects as The Trials of Daryl Hunt, The Devil Came on Horseback, Joan Rivers, A Piece of Work, Surviving Jeffrey Epstein, and The Preppy Murders. Ricky's latest project is Surviving Death, a six-part docu-series that explores ideas of life after death and psychic phenomena, including mediums, paranormal activity, and reincarnation. Surviving Death is now streaming on Netflix, and I highly recommend it. It's definitely not horror, per se, but delves into matters of the supernatural in a very compelling and beautiful way. I binged through the entire series in just a few days and was mesmerized the entire time. Seriously, check this out. She's a dear friend, and I enjoyed speaking to her immensely. So please enjoy this conversation with documentarian Ricky Stern. Ricky Stern, so good to see you again. Good to see you, too. How's everything going? It is okay, it, as we're managing. Yeah, right. <laughs> Seems like it's been a whirlwind year for you. First, you were surviving Jeffrey Epstein, and now surviving death. There's a lot of survival occurring here. I know. <laughs> really, I do not know how those two projects aligned next to each other, but yeah, two, two with the word surviving in it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, one thing, I, I'm a big aficionado of supernatural series, and I've seen a lot on ghosts and demons and supernatural and paranormal. It's rare to see any show that that delves into the paranormal without being scary. And this was, there was nothing remotely scary about the show. And it, it got eerie in a couple of moments, but it seemed like it was very consciously not scary, which I thought made it a really interesting exploration of the supernatural. Is that a conscious decision for it not to be frightening? Um, not so much a conscious decision for it not to be frightening, but a conscious decision for it to be grounded in real people's lives and their experiences and to, as best as I could, portray what they were expressing. So, and I didn't want it to get hokey and I didn't want it to be any of the tropes, like the horror film tropes that right. we would just you know, dismiss it and make it feel fake because, you know, for these people, you know, in the sixth episode, many people share different kinds of experiences with that, that are labeled. People don't like to call it paranormal, but you know, phenomenons that are right. sort of looking at consciousness outside of the body and it's very real to them. And so I wanted to, you know, both sort of create the mystery. To me, the the, the series is about sort of wonderment mm -hmm. and, and awe and mystery and intrigue. And that's those were sort of the things that I was l looking to, to build on. Yeah, because I thought the the overall feeling of it was very exploratory and it seemed to be very unbiased and had like no agenda. You weren't trying to prove or disprove, but it did have this sort of ethereal tonality to it where it, it really, like you said, embraced just the mystery of it, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, no, I was going to I was going to say thank you that you said that you said that because um, I think, you know, when you when you do a series like this um, and you look at researchers and doctors and um, scientists who are exploring and investigating this potential, this possibility of life after death, this possibility of consciousness out of the outside of the physical body, you know, it was never my intention to try to prove anything or mm -hmm. to even really build a case. I just wanted to give an audience the best 
examples out there of the research that's being done and let them, the audience, draw their own conclusions. Yeah. For me, it's about asking questions. And so, you know, but I think sometimes, you know, people have looked at this and said, like, I don't believe it. They didn't prove it. And I'm saying, like, I'm not trying to prove anything. Right. I just want to ask these questions, which are compelling questions and, and look at these really serious minded and very accomplished doctors and scientists who are doing this kind of research, not just in the United States at the UVA medical school, but, you know, around the world. Mm -hmm. And so that was my interest. Yeah. It's, it, um, I mean, overall it seemed to give a very, regardless of what you believe, it seems to give like a very comforting view of, of death and the potential next phase and things like that. And I feel like now's the time when a lot of people need that considering COVID and considering everything that's gone, gone on in the world. I mean, with all that in mind, I mean, another reception seems like it's been pretty great. I mean, I think you were number three on Netflix at one point. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. I, it seems like it's been, the response has been great. What have you been hearing from, from, from viewers? Yeah. It, first of all, it has, it was like number nine in the world at some point, which I was like, Whoa. what in the world? That's crazy. <laughs> um, and, and that's, you know, the, one great thing about Netflix is it does reach a very broad audience. Um, so, and it has been seen by a lot of people. Um, people for the most part are, are like appreciative sort of thanking us for making this series. Um, they find it hopeful. They, um, you know, and, um, and they're grateful that it takes a serious approach to these kinds of phenomenons. Um, you know, there's you have people who are, I want to say, like who believe this, who are vested in and in, invested in sort of life after death, and and this to them is the f a great example of sort of the serious nature of it, and, and they're appreciative. And then you have a lot of people who never they call themselves skeptics or non-believers, but they're like, I didn't believe this, but I found it really moving, and mm. I feel a bit more hopeful and. Again, like it was never my agenda. I didn't go into this doing the series with an agenda other than to ask questions and to probe these kinds of the work that's being done and to probe people's stories. And um, the fact that there it, it does feel hopeful really comes from telling people's authentic experiences, letting people really share um, their own stories and they are the ones that share this sense of hope. I, and, and so that's, I think where people are getting this sense of hope from it. Yeah. And I'm sure as a filmmaker, you had to approach this very objectively, you know, as far as not having an agenda to prove or disprove, like we talked about before, but throughout the course of making this either through research or through the experiences on set, were there any specific things that did shift your personal beliefs it's funny. Well, first of all, I would say that the, the series is based on Leslie Kane's book right. by the same title, Surviving Death. And I, her exploration, she's an investigative journalist, um, and her exploration, she really did have a personal experience. And so she really was transformed. And I was always trying to remain sort of objective to her personal experience mm -hmm. to say, you know, that's not the point of view of the series. But we, living through all these experiences these episodes it was like a roller coaster i would say you know some days we would be like looking at each other on set at a shoot and going like what that's crazy <laughs> how did that person know that or what you know a reincarnation story where you're like oh my gosh look at the evidence that this kid had you know to to this past life that there's no way when he had these you know specific details 
could have been found on the internet, like, because there wasn't, it, what, there was nothing about this character, this, mm-hmm. he was reading, you know, so we definitely had ups and downs. And then there were times I was like, Meh, I, I don't know. I, I'm not so sure I'm convinced by that. So it was really, um, I think I walk away from the series being more certain that I'm uncertain. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I'm, right. I'm open to it. And I'm, I too am hopeful. You know, I would like to think that there is, a way to connect with someone who passes on and, and that there's something more I'm hopeful. Yeah. Well, on the conversely, were there any experiences that were either too intense or frightening where you had to say, all right, I'm out of here or, or I have to put this book down or I have to stop talking to this person. Did anything happen that was like, okay, I've gone too far. I didn't find anything too scary or too, you know, wow, like that, that, that was frightening. I mm-hmm. definitely had moments where I was like, that's incredible. Like, you know, if that's real, then there is something afterlife. I, there were definitely, you know, if you watch it, there's a, there's a medium. So there was one moment that we portray, uh, we show a, a medium who has a reading for a family mm-hmm. and it's, perfect you know word for word and all the material that comes out of the reading can be found on their facebook page right and you know and they're disappointed and they feel duped and then she is you know defends that how did i know that and but also um that it's hard being a medium because there is so much information out there i mean there were moments like that where it was very helpful to have a character go through the doubt to be a skeptic Mm -hmm. so that we could have those moments of skepticism. We could have those moments of doubt, but they came through the story. Right. um, As opposed to me having to impose these, you know, there were always experts of people. um, For example, the people from the society for psychical research in Cambridge Mm -hmm. um, in the UK, they're the ones that could be, talk about the skepticism through the, through the, the years uh, regarding physical mediums, for example. Um, So it it was helpful. I think, you know, you want to ask those questions and you want to have some balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought that that grounded the show in a real way, just showing, but like you said, it didn't seem agenda driven. You allowed those, those things that potentially could, you know, disprove just to emerge naturally through the story, which, you know, as a documentarian, I feel like it, it all has to naturally emerge from the story. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Were there any concepts that, um, that hit the cutting room floor that you really wanted to get in there? Well, you know, it's interesting when you start doing, um, survival, it kind of veers into psychic side kinds of work as well, because, mm-hmm. you know, and as a lay person getting into it, I was like, I don't really get what's the difference if we, you know, study, remote viewing or psychic abilities why why isn't that part of this kind of a series and and now i fully understand it but leslie was like no you know our stories all are about investigating looking at the possibility of survival after death Mm -hmm. and side the sort of superhuman or human powers of being psychic and being able to read someone's mind or being able to take your mind and remote view it's not about survival. And so, so it really, it took me a while to sort of, you know, stay focused on this notion of survival, Mm -hmm. but I'm trying to think if there's anything that didn't, 
I don't, I don't think they were mostly just little stories. Like there were a lot of other medium stories that we had that I want, you know, would have liked to have told, but um, you know, we had to cut them out. Yeah. And you had done a, a, a series on UFOs in the past, or I believe it was just a, it was a feature on UFOs in the past. Are there any other supernatural areas that you want to explore in future projects? I really didn't even want to explore that or <laughs> so, so and I blame it on Leslie Kane who wrote, so she's the reason I did the UFO feature okay. is because she wrote a book uh, and she recently was in 2017 was one of the um, people who wrote the New York times cover article about the Pentagon's, you know, b- department studying UFOs. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah. So people in the audience, if they know you know, that case, that was Leslie Kane, but she had written uh, a book called UFOs. I can't remember the full title, but that was um, reliable pilots, police officers, people like that, former governor um, Fife Symington um, telling stories of, of witnessing UFOs. Mm -hmm. And so again, it was like the least, woo-woo kind of storytelling about it and the most sort of like here's the radar you know here's what someone witnessed here it is you know um but yes to answer your question i'm i don't think of myself as someone who's particularly interested in supernatural or paranormal kinds of stuff i'm actually not that interested in it so for me it's interesting because i i want to make it more universal i want Mm -hmm. it to be more about you know um what is what does it all mean? What is the purpose of life? What is our purpose here? And even for UFOs, like how are we to know that there is not other life outside? We know there's life outside of this universe, you know. And um, to me, again, talking in UFOs, interviewing um, astrophysicist at Johns Hopkins, that was fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, it was fascinating to me to hear from John Podesta and others, you know, that that they. That they think it's serious and important to investigate what's in the sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just like again the objectivity of these projects. I think is way more interesting than just doing a special on aliens that attempts to prove them. And you hear people telling the same old story about abductions and this and that, but allowing just the the implications of the possibility and the effect that that has on people, I think, is way more interesting than just, I was abducted, I got probed, I got whatever, you know, the same story that we've heard. Similarly with supernatural shows, I mean... Um, yeah, I mean that's what I loved about Surviving Death was it was it was the the human element I thought was huge and I think you lose that in a lot of the other supernatural stories about paranormal investigators and EVPs and hauntings and possessions and things like that as much as I love them and I do but this just felt so much more just grounded in humanity, you know. Yeah, I mean even even Mariah who is um, the she investigates ghosts. You know, she, she's not doing it because she's on some TV show. Right. She's not doing it because she's getting paid or doing like a running a weekend ghost hunter kind of thing. She spends her own money. Like she works hard at her job and spends her own money and travels around to these haunted sites and tries to connect. And that is what makes her you know, interesting to me makes her feel like her journey, her searching is authentic and real. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the, again, the, the character centric human element of it all, I think is what is so interesting. And in addition to all the supernatural elements. 
So we have a lot of um, filmmakers and aspiring filmmakers listening. Could you give us a sense of your origin story, how you essentially became a director? Yeah, I started really in theater. And I was thinking I would be more in the uh, acting world of theater. Um, And uh, went to graduate school for a year in theater and then came out and wanted to tell stories and wanted to be in control and realized that as an actor, I would not be in control of my destiny. Um, and um, through, you know, had many, many jobs in New York, working production, working at like Saturday Night Live, which sounded, you know, glamorous, but was not at all, you know, working on the <laughs> film unit. Um, but ultimately documentaries for me as a woman, uh, 23 year old, I guess, 24, um, was a way to work with friends from college and, you know, have a camera that we keep. My friend had a camera, someone, you know, had sound equipment and we would just go and tell stories. And that was for me, um, the way I could tell a story was to be a documentary filmmaker and not have to necessarily prove, especially then in Hollywood to Mm -hmm. be a woman, like as a director, it was, much more difficult than I think now, I think, you know, and, um, but the documentary filmmakers was, was much more open to it. And, Mm -hmm. um, the budgets are lower ultimately, um, you know, you can, uh, do a lot on your own and you can do a lot, you know, and so that, that was like my path into it. I mean, I, you know, I had all different kinds of jobs and I worked at HBO and all this other stuff, but I always worked on the weekends and at night making my own films because I never, I always say, like, if I could paint, I would have been a painter. If I could, if I could play an instrument, I would have been a musician. To me, making documentaries is is my creative outlet. Mm-hmm. And so, when I worked at HBO, um, I, I was I worked on the um, autopsy series first as an associate producer and then as a producer. That show was um, rough. Oh, it was really rough. I know. <laughs> we had like some either intern or associate producer, like she was from Harvard and she lasted a week. Just like <laughs> the, the body photographs of like autopsies. She was like, I'm out. Um, but I always wanted to make my own stories. And so I would just do it when I could. And, you know, sometimes it took years to make a story. Yeah. So. And your first feature was neglect, not the children, right? It was, it was a, it was a film that I did about a youth program in Harlem. I had met, I had been a volunteer at a um, welfare hotel and I met a boy, Barry, who wrote a poem called Neglect Not the Children. He was this 12 year old kid. It was just remarkable and had written this amazing poem and ended up going into a boy's home and they ultimately got adopted. But um, he really inspired me and uh, it did it over a couple of years. And then PBS ended up by, with grants and that whole kind of, you know, long process, but then it ended up on PBS and it was nominated for an Emmy. And I, I you know, and that sort of was the kickoff. But then I, I went to work for HBO because it was so stressful having to raise all the money by yourself and do right. all that kind of work on your own. It was nice to get a paycheck and to work nine to five in some sense, not that it was nine to five, but you know what I mean? wasn't yeah. like I had to sweat about it all night long. Um, and, but then very quickly I did in, in my corner, which was about a boxing gym in the Bronx about high school kids in this junior Olympic champions, because I just had to go out and shoot. You know, I just had to tell my story. I wish in some way I didn't have to do it. Like it's <laughs> painful to have to do it, but I'm just not happy when I'm not, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it is a real irrepressible drive to tell stories in you. 
It really is. I just I get the itch if I'm not shooting something. And, and then I don't even like it anymore. I mean, I do, but it's, you know, especially during COVID, it's it's hard, you know, yeah. to shoot. And yeah. Yeah. How have you been weathering this COVID storm as a filmmaker? Well, fortunately, Surviving Death was, um, we had almost finished editing it. So I was doing color correct and sound mixing. And, you know, the entities that, you know, Netflix and then Final Frame, my post house and my mixer, you know, got online very, very quickly and have a great team and they got me online. So, you know, we're actually color corrected on an iPad. We had all the same settings so we could speak, you know, so it was like, okay, we're using the same, you know, thing, this iPad, we're all on the same setting. So I know what blue looks like, you know, versus my computer and your computer. Same thing for audio. We all had the same headphones and all that. Um, And the same thing for surviving, I mean, for surviving Jeffrey Epstein, we were still shooting. So we, Annie, my film partner on that project, and I ended up um, doing a lot of remote shooting. Mm -hmm. So um, and, you know, it's evolved over the past eight months to what remote shooting is. In the beginning, it was like high powered Zoom recordings, which right. looked terrible. And then it was like sending them a camera that they had to set up and that looked terrible. And then it was getting local crews when things opened up. And that's kind of where we are now. I think the most successful way is you have your local crew. And if you can't get on a plane or for whatever reason, you're high risk as a director, you you can you get like a FaceTime or you get a zoom and then they have an eye line and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. It's, but we've been shooting, we've been shooting in New York. We're doing a film for HBO and we've been shooting with PPE. You know, we get tested two days before everyone gets tested. Mm-hmm. We have to submit our tests and then they sent us packs of PPE, which we just wear and protect not just ourselves, protect the subjects. And then, then the subjects can go without their masks. Cause yeah. Yeah. So as a, as we said, irrepressible storyteller, what is it that draws you to a project? I'm sure you have tons of ideas and you're constantly, you know, combing everything that comes at you for, is there a story here? Is there not, what is your kind of litmus test? Like what specifically draws you to a project and what do you make decisions on pursuing a project based on? I mean, I think early on, and maybe it's still true partly, is just character you know, for me, and I think it comes from my acting background is I'm really interested in who is this main subject? Who is the character? What is it that they want in their lives? What are the obstacles that they face? What is the journey they're going to go on in this film and the story that I'm telling? You know, I want to see change within the character over a period of time. That's sort of the goal. The narrative has some kind of a an arc to it that feels that can be, um, you know, storybook arc in some cases that were not, you know, mm-hmm. um, but just, you want to go deep with character. That's what still attracts me to stories is like the people going through it. Um, but then, you know, whether I'm doing a film about like the Boston marathon bombing and, you know, that touches on larger issues um, or uh, Darfur, you know, the devil came on horseback that deals with genocide in, in Sudan you know, you're, you're, you're getting into the set for the way we make films is you're getting into the larger narrative through this very intimate private perspective. Mm-hmm. So that's what I look at. What's the access, how deep can we get in there with these people? And then what's the larger story to tell? Yeah. 
And are there any sort of storytelling archetypes that you refer to, like, for instance, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey structure or anything along those lines? Is there any any texts or, or structures that you kind of refer to? Or is it all instinct? No, I definitely, I'm always writing down sort of what I think the story is going to be. And then after every shoot, like, how did it change? How did the story change? How did the, what did they say that, oh, that I, I'm imposing my idea on it, but actually this is really the nugget of what's going on. I mean, the, you have to have a, a vision, but you also have to have flexibility, I think, which I learned over time. I mean, my film in my, in my corner about these junior Olympic boxers was always supposed to be about like, these junior Olympic boxers who were going to go and they were going to win because they were like these two kids who were supposed to be the next best boxers in like junior Olympics. And of course, you know, they started to fail the minute I started shooting with them. And instead of like in the beginning, I was like, how can we tell the story of them winners when they're losers? And so it took me a while to open up to it, um, to realize, well, well, it is the story of 15 year olds coming with all the potential in the world and then getting caught up in their lives that are at risk, that have a lot of turbulence in, in them and transitory kinds of lifestyles and, and what they fell from, you know? So, mm -hmm. so um, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Totally. So I feel like documentaries had and are still having like a real heyday now. There's a lot more coming out. And obviously the market itself is getting flooded. But for those aspiring documentarians out there, are there any distinguishing characteristics that you think good documentaries have now that allow them to kind of stand out stand out amongst the fray? Oof. I don't know. So, so now I feel like there's so many series out there and everything, you know, when it used to be feature docs like HBO or Showtime or Cinemax or whatever, back in the day, um, it was feature docs. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, what is the good story that can sustain for, you know, an hour and a half or, yeah. and now it's like, what is a story that we can tell over five parts to make it <laughs> worth it? You know? And I think um, sometimes the, the, it shouldn't be five parts. I think sometimes it should just be an hour and a half. You know, I think sometimes stories are getting stretched and there's a lot of pressure on filmmakers to find something that feels, you know, big. Whereas sometimes the best stories are these small stories, you know, um, some of the films that are out there now that are sort of in the Academy, there's a film called Gunda about it's a black and white film about farm animals. And it's just this quiet poet, poetic, film and i think you know and it's doing really well among like filmmakers i think we just are looking for something different now you never know you know mm -hmm. you never know what's necessarily going to hit um which is why i think also when you go back to like you know a film trope of like do you do it this way is there like the journey hero story i just would encourage people to be truthful to the story you right. know if it's a poem let it be a poem you know i always refer i'm referring to it now a film called iraq and fragments and it really just touched down james longley's film i think it was nominated for an academy award just touched down in iraq at the moment during war and like you you live with three different i think it's three different stories for a period of time without some super narrative structure and you just get like, as I said, Iraq in fragments, these fragments of that world. And that was enough, you know, that mm -hmm. was enough. And I think sometimes 
we're, I mean, me included, we're like, well, you know, is this going to, is, are people going to care? Is it going to like have a life? Are people going to tune in? And, and unfortunately we have to ask those questions because that's how you get funding these days. But sometimes right. it's that unexpected little story or then unexpected, you know, maybe it's the one about truffle hunters this year or, mm-hmm. or a quiet film about time or something that is unexpected. And, you know, people are, you know, last year, like the honey, what was I can't remember the name of it. The bees, the honey keeper. Um, oh, shoot. Oh yeah. What was that called? Oh my gosh. It was really beautiful. And, um, and again, like who they didn't go in there thinking they're going to get an Academy, you know, get to the Academy Awards. Like you just can't go thinking about your audience per se. You have to just be true to your story. I think. I think that's huge. Last few questions. Um, Obviously, in the world of directing and filmmaking, there's a lot of resources, a lot of books on the topic, most of which are not so great. But that being said, were there any key volumes or resources or, or just books that were essential for you and your career, either from a business perspective or filmmaking perspective? It wasn't certain. I, I definitely would say no about books. I think it was just watching films yeah um the like Maisel brothers um you know uh, uh what is it oh gray gardens great gardens yes Got it. um you know films like that or even even um war room or you know penna baker's films or i mean i kind of grew up you know or even you know give me shelter yeah. you know these old films I, which were all very character driven, you know, they, they could just go along with these characters and let the stories unfold. And, um, and they were unexpected in that way. And they just were, the filmmakers were allowed to just sort of be there with them and be truthful. And that is what really inspired me as a filmmaker. Um, then, you know, sort of as I got older, I'm, I'm very interested in sort of visual ways to tell stories when you don't have the whole verite story there, when you can't spend hundreds of hours filming with someone. You know, how how do I visually like create the the feeling? And I think that was a lot of what was fun about surviving death is I got to really be creative with visuals and mm-hmm. music and tone. Um, and and so and then over the years, also working with great people, working with great DPs and music people and um, lighting people, um, it, I've learned from them too, yeah. um, you know, ways in which we can get more. I, and I do encourage, I think filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, they, you should know what lenses you like. You should know about equipment. You know, you don't necessarily have to be able to shoot but like it's helpful because then you can talk about certain kind of lights you want and certain kind of lenses you want to to create which will give you what you want Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's important to understand the tools that you're using in the toolbox yeah definitely (laughs) so what is next for you so we're doing so i'm working with annie on a feature doc for hbo and that has been uh a bit of an odyssey Mm -hmm. um in that um we started it pre-COVID about a year before COVID hit, uh, about inspired by the college scandal. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, it, it then became a film about this musical that had been written about college pressures parallel to the time that the college scandal was coming out. We follow the musical through high schools as sort of a window into these high schools wow. in, in Cupertino. Bizarre. 
Yeah, yeah. And in West Virginia. And then, of course, COVID wiped all that out and shut everything down, including our stories that we were building, building, building to these moments where the kid's going to go to college. Like, how is the play going to come off? All that kind of pretty straightforward narrative stuff. And now we're looking at like the sort of post-COVID, you know, I was going to say apocalyptic, you know, um, <laughs> George Floyd, like the impact that has had. And we're filming actually in New York City, in the Bronx and in Brooklyn oh, wow. with kids. So that film, and then I'm working on a, on a film about parole with um, Jesse Sweet. So, and then I don't know, I, I'm always looking for stuff. Cool. Well, Ricky, thank you so much. This was great to, uh, to finally be able to do this. So thank you. Thank you, Nick. It's good to talk to you. All right. Here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Ricky Stern. Number one, always convey information through the story. In the case of surviving death, Ricky wanted the series to be rooted in wonder and mystery without trying to prove or disprove anything. There was an instance where one of the mediums she profiled was channeling information about a deceased person, which we later discovered was easily found on Facebook. This was discovered entirely through the client of the medium as opposed to Ricky herself. Instead of coordinating her own investigation and intentionally trying to disprove or cast doubt on anything, this piece of information naturally uncovered it itself, which allowed the story to feel more cohesive and organic, as opposed to like a piece of investigative journalism. This is a big distinction in documentaries. You can always tell which ones have a point to prove and which ones allow the viewer to form opinions on their own. The latter is always way more interesting. Number two, feed your irrepressibility. Prior to directing her first feature, Ricky worked multiple day jobs, but would always spend nights and weekends working on her own projects, mainly because she couldn't help herself. Ricky's drive to tell stories her own way was too strong for her to not moonlight as a director prior to getting any official green light. In the end, one of those movies was nominated for an Emmy, which launched her career. If you have the drive to tell stories, find a way to do it regardless of your circumstances. This drive is something to cherish and maintain because it will dull if you do not nourish it. Number three, flexibility is key. When shooting a documentary, it's always good to have a point of view and a sense of the story structure, but don't be surprised if that story changes as you start filming. When Ricky was shooting In My Corner, she was documenting the plight of two boxers who she thought would go on to the Olympics. When it became clear they wouldn't, she quickly had to regroup and find another lens through which to tell her story. This is a classic scenario in documentary filmmaking and how stories typically do not unfold as you intended. That's okay and can actually work in your favor sometimes, as was the case with Icarus and the amazing Jonathan documentary, both of which turned unexpected curveballs into majorly fascinating stories. Good documentarians embrace these curveballs and find the stories anyway. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Horror Show.